Shoulder of Orion is brought to you by the generous support of our incredible patrons. To learn more about joining our Patreon, please visit www.perfectorganism.com forward slash support. Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. This is part two of a series as we discuss philosophy and Blade Runner with our esteemed guest, author Timothy Shanahan. Please join our conversation already in progress. about to move into 2049 but just to finish up with uh 2019 the first movie um one of the very few things that i find myself somewhat well versed in philosophy or at least i've read several times and i feel like i have an understanding of and we'll put a link to you know there's some really good youtube videos that concisely kind of explain uh, uh the allegory uh, for people online so that they can look it up quickly um but the Plato's allegory of the cave, uh, you mention in the book, and it seems to uh, relate a lot to the movie. And so I wanted to ask you kind of, um, for you, what does that allegory bring up in terms of Blade Runner and how it relates to the movie? And, and if you could give a, a brief, right. concise explanation of what the allegory is. Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, the allegory of the cave is one of the most famous images from the entire history of philosophy. And it appears in book seven of Plato's massive work, The Republic. And, you know, Plato is describing, well, it's, it's two people talking, Socrates and Glaucon. And Socrates says at the beginning, you know, let me tell you in a figure or in a story what our nature is like in its educated and uneducated state. Some translations say in our unenlightened and in our enlightened state. So he's already tipping off the reader, Plato's tipping off the reader as to what it's really all about. And then um, Socrates describes these prisoners in an underground cavern, an underground cave. And he says, they've been chained there for, since birth, and they're facing a wall, and they can't move their heads, so they're forced to be staring at this wall of the cave. And behind them, he says, is a raised wall, and there's a fire, and people are carrying these objects back and forth in front of the fire, on the wall, casting shadows on the wall of the cave. And that's all the prisoners can see, are the shadows on the wall of the cave. And the people carrying these figures back and forth are talking as they're doing this. So the prisoners are hearing echoes bouncing off the wall of the cave. So all they're seeing are these distorted, shadowy images on the wall of the cave and sounds which are sort of like words, but they're kind of garbled. And Plato says they've been there since birth. Now at this point in the story, Glaucon says, wait a minute, Socrates, these are strange prisoners. And this is a pretty strange story you're telling me. And Socrates says, they're like us. And that's, again, one of these clues that Plato's giving is that he's not just telling a story to tell a story, but it's supposed to be an allegory or parable of the human situation, the human condition. One of the prisoners is helped to escape, makes his way out of the cave with difficulty, experiences life in the upper world, has his eyes opened, as it were, and then goes back into the cave and tries to tell his former friends what he's seen. And to them, he's talking nonsense because they have no categories at all, no way to understand what he's talking about. So that's the, that's, there's a lot more to it than that, but that's the basic idea of the story. And I'm certainly not the first one to notice that, hmm, the situation Plato describes seems a little bit like moviegoers 
in a theater. You're in a darkened space with others. You're, you're staring straight forward. You're not really looking at people to the left or right of you, even though in a theater you could, but it's dark, you're facing forward, and there are images being projected on a flat surface in front of you, and they're being projected from behind you. The light's behind you, and the sound is coming maybe from behind you or from around you or somewhere. And you're fixated on the images and sounds that are in front of you and trying to make sense out of what you're seeing. Now, Plato tended to think that most of us in our uneducated state are stuck in this world of images. And that what we really need to do is turn around, as it were, and focus on things that are more real, on the really real. I know what's real. The moviegoer situation is analogous but different because we're not there involuntarily. We voluntarily, and we, we pay money, to go into the darkened theater to be... Uh, fooled? <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. I mean, if it's a good movie, we are fooled. I mean, to me, the worst, some of the worst movies are the movies in which I'm saying to myself, I'm watching a movie, I'm watching a movie, I'm watching a movie, because it's so badly done. I'm reminded I'm watching a movie. But the best ones are the ones that I'm so taken in by it that I'm undergoing a temporary suspension of disbelief. I'm allowing myself to be taken in by the sounds and the scenes. Now, Plato tended to think that the images had a lower kind of reality than what produces them. And there's a sense in which that's also true of films. Films don't have the same richness as, as ordinary life, as real life. But, you know, films can help us, I think, in some ways to better understand and appreciate reality because they take us out of ourselves. They allow us to vicariously experience things which we could otherwise never experience. They put us into worlds that we could never experience because the worlds don't exist as far as we know. And if the movie really is effective in this way, we leave the theater uh, enlightened to some extent with some different ideas, a different perspective, a different way of looking at things. So. You know, in the best situation, best possible situation, we go into the movie theater to be fooled, but we walk out with a better grasp of reality. Not exactly what Plato had in mind by the allegory of the cave, but it might be the way in which we experience those things in a positive way, thanks to movies. Mm -hmm. All these years you looked back on that day, drunk on the memory of its perfection, How shiny her lips, how instant your connection. Did it never occur to you that's why you were summoned in the first place? Designed to do nothing short of fall for her right then and there. All to make that single perfect specimen. This is a question that I like to ask, and as a movie, as a fan of films, as you are, not just the Blade Runner films, but what, what, uh, just because I'm interested, in, as I'm sure Dan's interested, when you first started hearing about 2049, what were your initial thoughts? Okay, so my, probably my initial thought was dread. <laughs> dread. This is a common answer. <laughs> right, right, I imagine it would be. I thought to myself, there are so many more ways they could screw this up, then there are ways of making it right. Mm -hmm. There's a very small number of ways to do justice to the first film, and there's a virtually infinite number of ways they could do damage to it. So the odds are not good. Mm -hmm. They're very abstract since the odds are not good. 
second thought was I really hope that the people that are making this new film love the original film as much as the fans do and are willing to take the time and make the effort and spend the money to do justice to the first film. Uh, I, do, I knew nothing about the director when I first heard about it, although when I heard who the director was, I started looking up his previous films, like Sicario and so forth, and I thought, okay, well, this guy knows how to make a movie. So that bodes really, really well. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact that Ridley Scott was involved, I thought that bodes well. Um, when I went in to see the movie, I was incredibly excited. I had, this was very difficult to do, believe me. I religiously avoided watching any trailers, reading any blogs. If people, many people, knowing, my, knowing of my interest in Blade Runner, wanted to engage me in a conversation about the new film and tell me about what they knew about it and so forth. And I said, stay away, <laughs> leave me alone. I want to go into this film with as few preconceptions as possible and as little information about the film as possible so I could experience it in a kind of pristine fashion. And I mostly succeeded. I mostly did succeed in doing that. So it was a genuinely new experience when I went in to see the film. I was captured, I was captivated right off the bat because the, it's not exactly an opening crawl. I guess a crawl has to be actually moving across the screen. I think we have, you know, words, appear, sentences appearing and disappearing. But the opening words that were so reminiscent of the first film, I thought this is off to a really good start. When the word Blade Runner appeared on that screen in red letters, I had a chill. I mean, I had a tingling all down my back. Mm-hmm. Goosebumps. Yeah. I had goosebumps. I was, I was, an, I could have just been happy right then, <laughs> you know. Um, when the eye appeared, I was very happy. Uh, as the film went on, I found myself uh, really becoming exhausted because I was trying to take in everything at once. I wanted to look at every part of the screen at the same time, which of course you cannot do. Mm-hmm. I wanted to pay attention to the words. I wanted to pay attention to the story. I wanted to figure out what was going on. It was just, and plus it was two hours and 43 minutes of doing that, of this intensity. When the film ended, I just felt exhausted, yeah. mentally exhausted, maybe physically exhausted as well. And I'd already planned to start, I'd already started planning to see the film a second or third time about an hour into the film, <laughs> realizing that this first viewing is not going to do the trick. I saw the film on the day it opened, October 6, and I saw it again the next day. And uh, the second time I actually was taking notes on my phone during the film, thinking I have to remember this, I have to remember that, because it'll be a while before any of these clips show up on YouTube. Um, so that was my first, that was my experience of it, kind of exhaustion. I think I was relieved at the end of the first viewing that it was as good as it was. I knew that I hadn't really understood it the first time. I literally did not understand the story. There was too much to take in, so the second time was better. I understood more the second time. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's a great film. I don't think it's the original film. I don't think it could be. Um, I think it's an unfair standard to say it has to be as good as the first film. That would be, I think, impossible. But I do think it's a worthy successor to it um, and plenty to unpack plenty to think about philosophically mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. some continuities with the first film but also some genuinely new things to think about as well yeah that was uh, that actually leads me into my next question which was kind of what similarities did you notice with the first film and, and what was new or different um, especially in terms of philosophy but just in general uh, the, the, the biggest difference I think has to do with again I'm going to leave all the stylistic elements aside and just think about the ideas and the themes 
the biggest difference I think is a result of the replicants having an open-ended lifespan. So the, the driving force for the rogue replicants in the first film to get more life and so forth is completely absent in the second film. So in a sense, they're free to worry about or think about other matters, either their freedom uh, or making their lives more meaningful. In the first film, I think, you know, getting more life, getting more time was thought of as a precondition for having a meaningful life. Since the replicants in the second film already have an open-ended lifespan, they don't have to worry about that issue so much, but they have to worry more about what should I do? Well, I'm thinking of K, especially. He's the main character, obviously. So that's one of the that's one of the dissimilarities. The similarities, I'd say, are, are go back to the two questions that Philip K. Dick said most interested him. What's real? You know, what's reality? And what's the authentic human being? I was pleased to see those two Dickian themes um, embedded in the new film in a major way. We can talk about you know how that how those themes get played out in the new film. As we just had an episode on her, Joy is um, one of the characters that makes these themes more complex and adds a, another layer to it, uh, of course, because you go from human to whatever Neander Wallace is, which we'll be doing a Wallace episode oh, soon, yeah. so we're going to discuss oh, that. Okay. But, uh, you know, and then the different uh, generations of replicants, and then you have this AI, which is mm -hmm. obviously a hologram, not really physical, um, but still, there are some of those struggles of personhood and, and all that in there. Um, yeah, humanity, life purpose. Um. Yeah, the, the Joy characters, it's a very creative, interesting way of advancing that theme without simply repeating the same issue that came up in the first film. So I think that's a brilliant move. Hello, handsome. Yeah, it, it's a, it, I think it's the uh, character representation of that concept of the concept of taking the ideas of the first movie and without copying them or being redundant um you know asking more questions and asking different questions mm -hmm. um there's a scene in um 2049 where it's almost a reversal of 2019 where towards the beginning Kay comes home and you meet joy and she comes out and he presents to her the emanator and she's all excited about it and he's it's this moment where he gives her more control he gives her more agency but the reverse of that happens with Rachel and Deckard in 2019 where she comes over to her his house and he verbally takes it away from her you're nothing mm. you, like he's taking anything that she could own about herself these aren't yours you're these are someone else's so you have this kind of reverse storytelling happening mm -hmm. where Kay is really about an empowering joy as much as he can and Deckard doesn't give a shit Deckard's like mm -hmm. no I'm taking this away from you and I don't care what you think happy anniversary an emanator that's a that's a really great observation I hadn't thought of that and it makes me wonder what the difference is between Deckard and Kay I, here's one here's one possibility is that Deckard absolutely thinks of Rachel as an inferior being, mm -hmm. as a different kind of being, one that's lower than him. You know, but Kay is coming from the perspective of somebody who is considered by others to be a lower sort of being. Think right. about the, the um, epithets thrown at him as he's walking through the police station, and also as he's trying to make his way to his apartment door, and people are you know, cursing him and so forth. He already thinks of himself 
as he thinks of himself as being thought of by others as a lower sort of being. So maybe that's a reason why he's able to relate to joy more as an equal than as an inferior being. He realizes just because you've got a different mode of being doesn't mean that you are necessarily less. Or, or at a minimum, it fuels compassion in him mm-hmm. for joy because he knows what it's like to be shit all over and treated differently and treated as a lower class or really not a human. Um, I mean, it's also the case that Joy's really nice to him. <laughs> so. True. Yeah, she's not difficult to... Uh, she's not hard to get along with. Right. You know? <laughs> That's true. Well, she's she also knows who she is, whereas Rachel didn't know what she, who she was and what she was, sort of. She's like a... She didn't know, whereas... Joy doesn't have that, that, what do you call that, um, the existential crisis of humanity. Joy didn't have that. She knew what she was. So you have these kind of mirror, it's like through a mirror darkly almost, where you see these similar events happening off in a a way they, in a completely different way. I am the business. By products made by man. It's very interesting. Yeah, this, this, this would take us way off on a, on a tangent, but uh, when you say that you know, Joy knows who she is, that raises, of course, all kinds of interesting questions about does she know things? You know, is she self-conscious? Is she self-aware? Or is she a really, really convincing program? Yeah, we've gone back and forth on that many, many times. Convincing a time. program. Um, <laughs> that's certainly Jamie's opinion. He's He's I, been very clear on that. I, I, think, I, I think that question, that's the decorep issue for 2049 it's not anymore whether Deckard is or isn't a replicant it's whether or not Joy is a person whether she's conscious whether she's self-aware that's the issue I think that the film the new film gives us ambiguous information on that allows people to take one side or the other and I would say maybe argue persuasively on this side and on that side it's it's artfully done the way the film gives us ample resources to argue either side of that question. Yeah, and we know that Villeneuve is very interested in carrying on that legacy of ambiguity quote-unquote because he knows how powerful it is and how it leaves the films open to discussion Um, and I think that was a really good call that was masterful. Has he said that about that particular issue? Do you know Um, if he said that? That's a good question. Well, he's talked about joy in depth in one video interview and he I wouldn't say certainly he wasn't dismissive but it was clear to me that he didn't from what I I don't know if you've seen this clip but from the clip it was clear to me now I could be biased because of what I think of Joy but it was clear to me that Villeneuve was a little bit more like eh this is what she was like he didn't give it much thought not that he didn't give it much thought I'm Mm -hmm. sure he gave her much he gives her a lot of thought but it was he seemed to have no problem kind of verbally articulating her like she's a product and she's there for K and then he kind of moved on to the next subject okay he didn't say anything explicitly about I created her or no. had her created so that it would be ambiguous whether no, she was not no. to say however no. I will say that the, the scene with Mariette and her together uh-huh. the amount of feeling feeling but there's so much going on there um on another level of this this creature made from light and this creature made from biological material melding into one so that this replicant can have a 
real slash less real experience. It's fascinating mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. And yeah, to mm-hmm. expound on that, I'd have to watch that interview, which I will after this. But um, in my mind, knowing a little bit about how Villeneuve has made movies and, and again, the benefit that he saw to the ambiguity of the first film, isn't it the perfect answer for him to be asked about joy and, well, can she do this? Can she do that? How real is she? Does she, you know, does she have a consciousness, etc.? And for Villeneuve to basically answer, she's a hologram. Like he's giving you a fact about what she is Mm -hmm. and then he's moving on. Mm -hmm. Generally speaking, I've noticed his answers about the film work the same way. It's not that Mm -hmm. he doesn't know more. It's that that's all he's willing to say because Mm -hmm. he wants you to think about it. Totally. That could be true. Totally. To me, I think that again carries on the ambiguity. Now that might be me seeing what I want to see in joy or in the filmmaking, but it seems appropriate at least that he's, he's certainly avoiding as the director giving specific answers to ambiguous questions. To me, that seems like a gift from the director. Mm -hmm. He's allowing the audience to enjoy the film even more. Right. That's great. And not all directors do that. Some of them want to give you very specific answers. Yeah, and you know, that's uh, some of the contention with Ridley Scott these days where he wants to answer every question in these new movies that he's making. Is that right? And some people have a hard time with it. How are the aliens made? Well, let me tell you. Um, Or the Star Wars films, how does Han Solo get his name? Well, we'll tell you how he got his name. You know what I mean? Uh Where it's eviscerating the mystery, which is what makes films beautiful. Mystery and having to pose questions and not get an answer for, for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. There's a lot of beauty to mystery and, and all kinds of things. Love, life, everything. You might not want to ask your parents, where exactly were you when you made love and conceived me? Exactly. I mean, those, there's certain things you might not want to know. Mm-hmm. What mm-hmm. did you mean when you were surprised? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I've seen a couple of different articles talking about the role of women in 2049. Um, we've seen the role of women or at least interactions with Rachel be uh, complicated and difficult to talk about uh, especially after the Me Too movement and we've gone back and kind of looked at the love scene uh, from the love slash hate slash rape it's got a lot of names but that scene in the first movie which you know depending on your perspective and your life experiences can be very difficult to watch and and the intent of the scene and how it was written originally you know we've kind of unpacked that in a separate episode on that scene Um, but I've read sort of, uh, feminist sort of, uh, pro 2049 approaches to how many women are cast in the film and what their roles are, et cetera. I've also read other articles that, um, feel like the women are more unilateral. What's, do you have an opinion on how women were uh, portrayed in 2049 as opposed to 2019? Yeah. I hope I'm not too obtuse on this, on this issue or insensitive, but it seemed to me that the, the, the main theme some of the main female characters in 2049 came across as very strong. You think about Lieutenant Joshi. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was a very strong character. Love, insofar as we can think of her, and she's a replicant, of course, but uh, she's incredibly um, dynamic and Not powerful. a weak character, yeah, that's for sure. It's true that Joy um, looks very much like a, a male fantasy housewife slash girlfriend. That's absolutely true. And you do get lots of images in the film of women objectified as sex objects, but uh, it's also balanced against some very strong female uh, characters. I'm not sure that the the ratio of male to female characters in the film is unusual in some way. It doesn't. It didn't seem that way to me. But again, I hopefully I'm not being obtuse about that. 
Um, I mean, the argument could also be made that films don't necessarily need to reflect our highest values and our aspirations for one another, but they do. But but they do have to say something about the society in which those characters exist. And if Los Angeles in 2049 is a society in which women are objectified in that way, you could look at that as adding to the dystopia of of that period of time. Uh, in the same way, maybe in the same way in the original film, you know, the Deckard-Rachel interaction certainly looks like uh, rape. And you could insist that shouldn't be in the film because you know, obviously women shouldn't be treated that way. But maybe it's in the film because it's telling us something about Deckard and how callous he is and totally. how he views the replicants and how he views Rachel. So I think, I think for me, the role of women in either film has to be understood in, in the context of what is the film trying to say about either an individual, say Deckard, or society at that time, rather than saying it's got to conform. If a film, if, if the depiction of individuals in films, whether they're men or women, always had to conform to our highest ideals for human beings, there'd be some pretty boring <laughs> <laughs> Where really would the conflict films. be? Right. Yeah. No, and I, I couldn't agree with you more. And that's, again, we've kind of unpacked this before. And that was one of my comments. And I'm comfortable having a conversation about feminism and about the role of women, even though there aren't any women present in this room right now, simply because we've invited women on the show before and have given them plenty of, of a platform, you know, that we can't always have a bunch of people on the show. So, you know, I'm comfortable that I know we've given women a platform to talk about these issues before. So I was just curious, you know, with your philosophical background, mm -hmm. et cetera. But yeah, uh, sort of a, maybe a more simplistic analogy but it's it's like you can't watch 2049 and say oh pan am is still in this that's stupid pan am doesn't exist anymore it's atari like, an atari right like well this movie isn't trying to parallel real life it's also snowing in los angeles and yeah. all animals except for maybe bees are extinct like that you know what i mean mm -hmm. like it's not a desirable future so the fact that we're creating beings to serve their entire lives out as prostitutes or sex workers for example mm -hmm. is no i don't think it's a comment on idealism in society i think it's just a fact of it's society could certainly turn out this way you know it could be a warning even you know you could look at it like that right, right. i'll i'll submit this though that with 2049 if you look at the larger f picture of the film the main story what the 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 case that K is on. What is that case? What's happening? The lowest of the low kinds of woman, not even seen as a woman, a replicant woman. Um, she's nothing. She's the lowest of the low. She had a baby. So she has power. She created mm -hmm. a, a, um, um, her life. own power. She created life. So no one's controlled, no one controlled that. No man had control of that. And I, I would offer that that is the highest level of female empowerment. Whereas you, you look throughout history, women were, for a, women couldn't vote. Women were seen as a property of, of their husbands. If there was a divorce, mm -hmm. the the husbands got the, the children. They were his property. She, the women got nothing. Um, so there's always been this struggle of power. And what you see in 2049 is the struggle of power. Rachel found power. And that power is now a threat throughout the whole film. Where is this child? It is not possible. And it's a threat to the whole structure. Mm -hmm. Because this woman, who isn't a woman, had a baby on her own. And I feel like that—that yeah. that is the message. I think that's 
incredible empowerment for women um, because it's been taken out of the hands of the men in control. Mm-hmm. That's my offer. And you know, uh, Neander Wallace, that's the power he wants. Absolutely. And that's the power he can't get. And he kills the replicant, not just kind of almost out of spite, the one that we see fall from. The newborn. The, the newborn, mm-hmm. yeah. Because he knows she can't, like that's what he wants. He wants that. But he, like, so she's useless to him. And that's interesting too, that whole idea that women are useless. These replica, replicant women are useless to him because they can't procreate. So what good is your life? Even with Rachel 2.0, he, mm-hmm. he Deckard rejected her. Uh, who Bang. gives a shit anyways? She's nothing. Kill her. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, if anything, it's a struggle from, for power from the power of creation from women. That sounds right to me. That's a really good observation. I think that we'd have to be careful to not reduce reduce that idea, which is a great idea, to the idea that women's function or role yes. is to reproduce. Yes, oh, of course. Yeah. You can also get someone like Fraser, uh, the, um, the leader of the resistance movement. I mean, she's not a weak person. Her interest isn't in reproducing. It's in leading people behind mm-hmm. her in a mm-hmm. worthy cause. Mm-hmm. So there's a very good, strong female figure. It's mm-hmm. not about reproduction in that case. It's about revolution or resistance. Yeah, and I, for me, it's not even, again, it's not so much that, oh, this is, makes her powerful that she can have a baby. Yeah. It's that it developed on its own without puppet strings. So she, out of whatever was going on, whatever happened between Rachel and Deckard, whatever he was, replicant or human or whatever, they created something that was out, outside the, the bounds or the boundaries of these manufacturers. And now the manufacturers, their whole, their whole business is in jeopardy if, 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 they don't, if they're not needed anymore, if these replicants can have children. And Rachel is to account for that in some ways. Yeah, you know, as, as you're talking, I'm thinking about the words that Joy says to Kay. And of course, Joy is programmed to say everything you want to see, everything you want to hear. But when she's encouraging Kay to think of himself born from a woman, pushed into the world, wanted, loved. That's everything that the replicants that Wallace makes aren't. So you're, I think you're exactly right. Rachel and Deckard, Rachel made something which has those characteristics. And no matter how many replicants Wallace makes, they'll never have that characteristic. He hasn't, doesn't have the power to do that. Right. There's even the conversation between Kay and love early on and they're talking about it's a, a paraphrase love she goes it's it's invigorating those questions makes you feel wanted when you're asked personal questions yeah yeah you find it yeah almost like i mean these are slaves talking knowing that they're they're there for a reason but they're not wanted really you know it's a very interesting conversation to you me. know I, i'll be honest with you i'm i'm still puzzled by that because she says that you know uh, it's invigorating to be asked personal questions. Do you enjoy your work, officer? Yeah. I think that's what she said. Yeah. So I thought, okay, this is leading somewhere. Where's, where's this going? But I'm not sure it went anywhere. So I'm still puzzled by that interaction. It seemed like she was trying to make a connection with him, but... Ah, oh, interesting. I did not see it what that happened? way. I saw it as love um, messing with Kay. If you look at the look mm. on her face, she says... It's invig- some some find it invigorating to be asked personal questions, and she segues she segues right into, do you find your job? Do you find your work mm-hmm. interesting, officer? And 
Ryan Gosling plays it very well because Kay looks back at her and kind of smirks, but doesn't answer the question. Like he sees he, right through her. Well, and he realized the question was asked rhetorically. She doesn't care to know whether he enjoys his work or not. She was just trying to show him that people do that to pretend that they're interested in you, but um, no, nobody's interested in you. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah, that, yeah. that's yeah, how yeah. I looked oh, at it. Oh, that's great. Yeah. That, that's how I saw that. And I saw that all in the eyes of the actors. You can see it that's on their great. faces. It was unclear what she was, at least to someone. This was a test. We were difficult to spot then. Was there anything unusual about how you found her? To warrant an official investigation? You know how people are about old serial numbers. Everyone just sleeps better when they know where they got to. She likes them. Oh. This Officer Deckard. She's trying to provoke him. It is invigorating being asked personal questions. Makes one feel desire. Do you enjoy your work, Officer? Since we brought up Rachel, uh, I wanted to ask, uh, make sure that we didn't glaze this over. Um, can you talk a little bit, and whether it's visual or leads into philosophy or whatever, just you know, as a viewer, what was your experience um, seeing the return of Rachel or Rachel 2.0, the clone of Rachel? People refer to it in different ways. We've we've discussed it and kind of talk about, for example, between me and Jamie. You know, he identifies as as he often does a lot more with Rachel, and in this case with her clone, uh, I really view the scene from Deckard's perspective, but what are your thoughts on that scene, and how did you react to it? How did it feel? My, my, I think my first reaction was, hey, they brought Sean Young back, <laughs> and look what a great job they did. Um, That's what I thought, too. I really did think it was her. Me, too. It, I thought they just, I thought she lost weight, they made her, they accented her. I was like, oh my God, there she is. Yeah, yeah. I was a little bit disappointed when I found out later on it wasn't, but but then I thought, well, what a great job they did. Right. You know, they fooled me. They, 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 they fooled, fooled me. Yeah, what a, I totally think that's the best me. compliment to the visual effects team that you could give them. I mean, Rachel, Rachel hadn't appeared for that long, so it didn't give me time to start identifying with this new person. Um, I didn't, I mean, obviously it wasn't Rachel. I knew it had to be a copy, and there wasn't time to begin emotionally becoming attached to this figure. Whereas with Deckard, you know, it seems like I've known him for a while, so I think I saw that scene more through Deckard's eyes than through um, Rachel's. And I just wondered what, what Deckard was thinking. On the one hand, he knows it's not Rachel. On the other hand, you know, we can know something perfectly well and yet be overcome by the appearance of something. So I think that's what Deckard was going through at that time, at that moment. It never occurred to me for a moment that he would take Wallace's bait. Uh, it didn't seem like Deckard's not the sort of person who would who would do that, especially knowing that it's a it's a copy. Um, the, the scene I, I can't say the scene had a lasting effect on me. I thought it was interesting to put it in the film, but I thought Deckard's not going to be convinced by this, and I was fairly happy that it ended, you know, as when it when it did. I'll have to throw you a curveball and yeah, <laughs> of yeah. all the questions I prepared for you I have to add one real quick uh -huh. because we asked Paul Salmon and we've talked about it but I wanted to ask without uh, guiding you through it at all I just wanted to ask your opinion um, how do you see his response at the end where he says 
her eyes were green and then turns around and rejects her. And, and to remind the fans and, and possibly to remind you, although I'm sure you've seen it in the past, um, Sean Young and Rachel's character's eyes have always been brown. Right. Although one of the close-ups of the Voight comp show her eyes as more of like a greenish hazel. Um, I'll leave it there. But and take your time. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's two. There's at least two ways of thinking about this. One is it, maybe it's a goof. Maybe I mean that's conceivable. It's a goof in the film where uh, Deckard is supposed to be saying, "Look, you got it wrong." The more interesting version of it, I think, would be to say he knows perfectly well what color Rachel's eyes were. He knows perfectly well. So then what does it mean when he says to Wallace, her eyes were green? It could just be his way of saying, what kind of an idiot do you think I am? Right? What kind of a sucker do you think I am? I'm not even going to give you the benefit of the doubt of saying no. I'm just going gonna, gonna to make it clear to you, though, that I'm not one that goes in for fakes. I know what's real. I know what's real. And that's not real. Which is what he says in so many words. So that's my interpretation of it. It's not very deep, but I think that's the easiest way of reading that scene. Oh, I agree with you, and I, and I think although the purpose of this interview wasn't to break the film down visually, if you break the film down visually in every scene, and you know we've interviewed some of the people that worked on the film, to me it's almost inconceivable that that visual effects team, uh, or even the people that got together, wrote and edited the script, made a mistake in Rachel's eye color. That just about seems impossible to me yeah. with how purposeful and accurate um, everything else about this movie was. I mean, mm -hmm. if you think about it, we're just fans, essentially, in terms of how we relate to this movie, and how many times have we watched those scenes? How many times have we gone back and looked at the Voight contest and paused it and had conversations online where people are like, her eyes were brown, her eyes were green, and I'm like, well, in this scene, her eyes were obviously brown. In the video, they're obviously green. How many times do you think the visual effects team that had to recreate Rachel from scratch watched those mm -hmm. scenes? Like thousands. So mm -hmm. to me, it seems like just a logical fallacy that they would have screwed up. Oh, and also there's a, uh, Sean Young did a Q&A with when the film was still in release or newly in release in Austin. And she talked about it. She said oh. that um, right when they were reading the script, she said her and Harrison looked at each other and looked at Denis and said, her eyes were brown. And I can't remember how... She explained that, but she explained it why it was the way it was. I have to. We, it's Ooh, intriguing. Film, an interview we'll that have we have. That's a teaser. Yeah. Yeah. We'll have to. We'll have to look that up. Because okay. they, they wouldn't make a mis I mean, all that. All that detail in that film. There's no way that they would just yeah. accidentally make her eyes the wrong color. I mean, they're they're scanning this woman's face in the computer and rebuilding her yeah. from scratch. They're looking at every piece of film from the original. Yeah. So they were going to get her eyes wrong and yeah. the script too? No way. They, they won an award for that. They won yeah. an Oscar for their visual right. effects. I mean, and, and the uh, the director, the, I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but his title, the visual effects director was talking about how, how proud they were that they got, you know, her flyaway hairs right. Because, you know, mm -hmm. if you really look carefully, you can see a couple of flyaway hairs and like obviously that has to done be done with purpose when you're creating it from scratch and so yeah I just I don't buy that it was an error yeah. uh, to me again it's Deckard's way because that's something that Wallace might not know from the original Rachel from 30 years prior mm -hmm. so to me that's his way out of just being like I need to show him um, in a concise way that like like you said I don't mm -hmm. accept this it's a fake I know it's real I'm walking away um, so here's here's an here's an interpretive principle, you know. There, when there's more than one way to interpret a scene, 
Um, all other things being equal, try to interpret it in such a way that it gives maximum credit to the filmmakers. Hmm. And it's kind of sort of a principle of charity. And uh, all other things being equal, which they aren't always, but um, try to interpret the scene so that it becomes as interesting and significant and meaningful as possible. Again, that's all other things being equal. If there's certain facts that don't allow you to make a certain interpretation, then that's kind of ruled out. But if the facts don't dictate it one way or another, um, I would say give the filmmakers the benefit of the doubt. And I think if nothing else, Denis and his entire team that produced this movie, they deserve that much from us. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if that's any small thanks we can give them for creating this masterpiece that was 2049, which th I th know. Thank you for the film. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> totally. What, what was the most meaningful moment for you in 2049? You know, I, I can give you two, two different kinds of answers. Um, one answer is, I think, in terms of individual scenes, as I think back about the, on the film, maybe the scene in which Kay is on what looks like a bridge and he's approached by the giant Joy hologram. And she says, you, you look like a good Joe. I think that's meaningful to me because maybe at that point he finally comes to a decision about what he's going to do. He, maybe he's reconciling himself in some way to what kind of a being Joy is, but also he's deciding whether or not to heed Freya's advice to kill Deckard so that the child can't be tracked down. And he's got this thought, you know, um, dying for a cause greater than yourself is the most human thing you can do. He decides instead to help Deckard be reunited with the daughter he never met. So I, I think maybe in that scene is when he's coming to grips with the options in front of him and makes a choice, makes a decision. Um, a decision which is not at all part of his programming or his you know, being made to obey and so forth. So that's one answer. Second answer is, I tend not to think so much about the meaningfulness of individual scenes, but rather of the film as a whole. So it's the whole film, I think, that has meaning for me, not an individual scene taken in isolation from, from the rest. Um, cool. I, I love that answer. Uh, speaking of more specific things about the film, um, we didn't really talk about the meaning of the unicorn in the first film, which has been discussed ad nauseum in other episodes, and of course in your book it's mentioned. Um, we, of course, mentioned in earlier episodes, and you can find it online, and you know you have to kind of pause the film just right and really pay close attention, but um, if you pay attention in a couple of scenes, you can actually tell that the horse totem from 2049... Um, it has a scar on its head. <gasps> I did not. Did you not notice? I did not notice that. <laughs> That's actually the question, the thing oh, that wonderful. I discovered that led me to call into the show, which then ended up me becoming a host of this show. So it's a really meaningful question to me. Sure. But um, yeah, there's a couple of specific scenes which I can clue you into later. But yeah, again, we, we mentioned it in another episode, and you can see very clearly that there's a scar uh, just above the eyes, centrally on the forehead of the unicorn, and so it was uh, or the horse. Yeah, yeah. So it looks to me like, and again, these things aren't mistakes. There's no way there's accidentally a scar on this handmade wooden object, right? So. Uh, I don't know how they created that, whether they just added it or whether they created it as a unicorn and then cut it off. But the implication for the uh, prop is that it was created as a unicorn and then at some point, obviously not on accident, otherwise that wouldn't make sense for the plot, the horn was cut off uh, or broken okay, off. Yeah. And so um, I feel like you know that brings in some symbolism in terms of... Uh, because the unicorn is associated with Deckard's dream slash uh, who Rachel is as well. Mm -hmm. um, and I think as we find out that she gave birth to a child, it was this very special uh, Nexus 7 of which only one existed 
or potentially two if some would argue that Deckard could be a, a Nexus 7, which is a possibility. Um, yeah, how did you see the... Well, of course, now, since you didn't realize that it may have been a unicorn, there's new meaning. But, you know, even just the horse, but horse slash unicorn totem in 2049, what what kind of meaning did that bring up for you? I will I will confess, I did not notice the scar on the horse's <laughs> Well, we're, we're happy to bring and, you into a new detail. And I'm, I'm delighted to, to learn that. I'm anxious to look at the scenes where that, that can be seen. Um, I mean, obviously, that would connect, connect the two films. I, I, I like those little connections between the two films, and I'll emphasize the word a little because there's so many ways in which the director could have overdone it mm-hmm. and had all kinds of blatant connections just to give a momentary bit of joy to avid Blade Runner fans. But he seems to have resisted and put in just enough to remind us of the earlier film without beating us over the head with it. So that's kind of, that's really artistry. Uh, you know, my thoughts about the wooden horse uh, go in a very different direction. Again, because I hadn't noticed the scar on the, on the forehead. And I didn't really associate the horse with a unicorn. What got me about the horse was, though, when, when Kay takes it to Dr. Badger, the, I want to say, Somali uh, businessman or, you know, and to get it analyzed, like, where did this come from? And Dr. Badger says something like, you know, this is real wood. Now, a lot of thoughts went through my mind at that point because real wood is apparently extremely rare and valuable in 2049. Now, if you think about Neander Wallace's offices and the place he hangs out, the two dominant themes are wood and water, and he's got a lot of wood. I mean, there's that walking on water planks going over to that little island with wood, and the walls are wood. Mm -hmm. He's got a ton of wood. I mean, it kind of gives you a sense of how unbelievably wealthy he is. And I wouldn't have realized how rare and expensive and valuable wood was maybe without Dr. Badger's mention of that. The other thing that Dr. Badger says that really got my attention was, you know, you're a rich man. Um, you know, give it to me or sell it to me and I'll get you a real horse. Now, what does that mean? It can't mean a real horse. There are no real horses around anymore. Oh, I never thought about so, that. That's a great So point. what does a real horse mean? And he says, he yeah. helps us. Well, like Wallace, like Wallace, is what Dr. Badger says. Uh, so what he's really talking about there is an animoid horse, an artificial horse. Now, the fact that he says, I'll get you a real horse, and what he means by a real horse is a fake horse, <laughs> this made my eyes open up because I thought, okay, in, by 2049, the, the boundaries of the real have shifted somewhat that a real horse is now an animoid horse. Forget about real, real horses. Those are so completely off the table. There's no point in even talking about those anymore. But a wooden horse isn't a real horse, but an animoid horse is. So the boundaries have shifted somewhat by 2049. That blew my mind when I thought about that. Mariette says something similar. When Joy comes on, she's like, oh, you don't like real girls. Exactly. So that's the new real. Exactly. Yes. I'm glad. I'm so glad you noticed that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's uh, yeah. That's fascinating. Um, oh, I gotta add one last question that I didn't think about before because I put it up online on both the Shoulder of Ryan page and the Field of, Fields of Calantha page. Speaking of animals and what's real, um, what did you think of the scene with the bees when Kay shows up and you know puts his hand and looks at it? That whole very atmospheric, very slow, very 
Villeneuvian uh, scene, if you'll forgive the term. Boy, was that puzzling. Boy, is that a puzzling scene. There shouldn't be any bees. Right. Least of all bees. I mean, right now, in 2018, bees are uh, under pressure. Yeah, one say. of the first to go, one would assume, if there's this mass extinction. Yeah, so there shouldn't be any bees in 2049. If bees depend on flowers and so forth for nectar, there aren't any flowers. By the way, where that little bit of a flower next to the tree came from is another mystery. So what are these bees doing hanging out by Las Vegas? I mean, again, I'm trying to think about things in logical terms, meaning what are the basic possibilities, even if some of them we can rule out right away? Well, I mean, they could be animoid bees, but why? Why would there be animoid bees out there hanging out? Um, another possibility would be, okay, there are no flowers, but there are those disc-type things nearby. Maybe they're getting a source of sustenance from, hmm. from that. But again, why? Why is that? Here's a third possibility. And again, I don't want to, I can't attribute any plausibility to any of these possibilities. This is very far-fetched, very, very far-fetched. But there's this great line from the first Jurassic Park movie where the Jeff Goldblum characters and mm -hmm. Malcolm, Malcolm mm -hmm. Ian or Ian Malcolm? Ian like Malcolm. Yeah. Ian Malcolm, where he says, life finds a way. Life always finds a way. That's a great line from that movie. And that line came to mind when I saw the bees. It's that, you know, there aren't supposed to be any bees, but there are. Maybe life finds a way. Maybe it's a slight little bit of hope in the film. And it's right when, when Kay is approaching where he thinks he's going to find Deckard. So maybe it signifies his hope that he's going to find what he's looking for. He's going to get confirmation of what he's looking for, and it's going to be a great experience. Uh, I don't know. That's my guess. I you think, know. yeah. Um, Might be I, too much into it. No, no, not at all. I, I would encourage you to go to the uh, discussion groups online because uh, people go in. I, I brought up a lot of points because I was thinking about it just to encourage the conversation. And then, of course, our fans and listeners, everybody responded. So I'd encourage you to. And those points were brought up. Um, the one thing Villeneuve said was along your last lines, meaning that in a world where most animals, if not all animals, are extinct, the fact that you see bees, which to me makes the assumption that they are real bees and not some kind of artificial or replicant uh, animoid, um, was a bit of hope. He wanted to show hope that, as you said, quoting Jurassic Park, uh, life finds a way or that there, there is the possibility of life to be renewed. Um, so in terms of the artist's intent, I think that was the intent, although you can extrapolate a lot other, of other meaning out of it, which, you know, makes sense with that sort of ambiguous uh, theme. And this is part of what makes the film so rich. I mean, the director doesn't beat you over the head with it or tell you explicitly. He leaves it there as a clue that you can figure out for yourself. That's wonderful. Yeah, That's it good. is. Um, uh, one last question, and then we'll close. I uh, wanted to just ask you uh, if as rumor would sometimes have it, uh, they were to make a third movie to sort of turn this into a trilogy. Uh, without, <laughs> without expounding on the dread that that obviously makes you feel, uh, which I agree because I'm like, can we really, can lightning strike twice? You know, are we really going to mess with this again? But my question would be, under the assumption that it was done right, what direction would you like to see the plot go or, or the character? You know, what would you like to see that we haven't seen maybe in a third movie? 
It, the, the question, it sounds like you, you're not, you don't want me to say no, th- no third film. Well, I, right. I, I'm skipping past the assumption. Yeah. Like that, that yeah, could yeah, quite possibly be the way you feel, which is kind of the way I feel too. But I'm just saying, since it is beyond our control and certainly yeah, yeah, our it, pleas are not going to stop anyone from making a third film. I think you're right. So let's assume that a third film was or is being made. What would you like to see in that film? Yeah. I, I, I shudder at the idea of Blade <laughs> Runner becoming what they call a franchise. Right. You know, because I, I have images of Rocky Four going through my <laughs> my head when I hear, I hear a movie franchise, and I don't want there to be a Blade Runner Four. It is significant, I think. Well, Hampton, who was it? Hampton Fancher, I think, might have said he was surprised to find out that people didn't think that Kay died mm-hmm. on the steps. Because Michael end. Green said that. Oh, Michael Green, thank yeah, you, yeah. thank you. That's right, that's right. I read that somewhere. Thank you. You know, you've got the time to die music playing and. He looks like he's mortally wounded, and it would be fitting if he died at that point. He's in peace and so forth, but we don't really see him die. Um, the director, Denny Villeneuve, said at one point in an interview that while they were making the film, there was no thought given whatsoever to a third, a third film. And yet other things I've read suggested that perhaps that was a possibility. Honestly, I don't know. I really don't know how to answer this question. I'm not a filmmaker. Um, it's hard for me to imagine films before they're made, and I'm just delighted that people make these movies in the first place and allow us to see them. So I can't do justice to that question, I'm afraid. Fair enough. We'll uh, we'll probably put it out into the uh, internet and see. Yeah, I mean, I don't even know. I don't need a third film myself. Like, I don't. I, I don't even think of what's Decker doing with Stalin now. I don't even think of that. Like to me. It's a complete story. Like, yeah. I don't even think of the films separately. I don't compare them. It's one full story. You have the beginning, 2019, which was full of wonder and exploration and all of those questions being presented. And then you have 2049, which kind of extends those questions and makes the world bigger and worse. Like, that's how I see it. I don't even... Yeah, I think, I think Denis Villeneuve actually described uh, 2049 as an extension of 20, 2019. That's a good way to look at it. My response when people inevitably, the same way people who know Blade Runner, if they find out that you're a you know expert, so to speak, which really just means a nerd about the movie, but um, you know in terms of being knowledgeable, and they want to ask you, so what do you think is Deckard a replicant or not? When people ask me about uh, 2049, usually the first question is, so which movie do you like better, oh. the first Blade oh. Runner or 2049? Oh. And very often. I kind of, I like using analogies to explain complicated things, not complicated in the sense that someone's not going to understand me, but in the sense that maybe I don't know how to explain it. And so oftentimes I'll, I'll say, you know, that's like asking somebody if they like the piano or the violin better. Like you can have a preference, but objectively it's hard to say this instrument is superior to the other. Now that may be an oversimplification, but that's how I feel. I get different but similar emotions when I sit down and watch the original movie versus when I watch 2049 I can see them together and as part of a whole um and and yeah for me it's kind of like trying to decide which musical instrument of of two that you like you know you Mm -hmm. can pick any one uh Mm -hmm. is is better and I really I don't have an answer I can't say 2049 is a better film or or 2019 is a better film Mm -hmm. they're two parts of a whole that now are for me, inextricably linked. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. I would say, you know, if there was a, a third film, in the general features I'd like to see is um, emphasis on the characters, 
um, maybe a little bit less action, um, a continued exploration of deeper themes, because that's what makes these films special. It's not the action sequences especially, but it's, it's the focus on these issues that really are deeply human concerns. So a sequel would have to focus on those sorts mm -hmm. of issues. And then finally, um, less than two hours long. Yeah. Less than two hours. Well, two really? hours long. Let's say two yeah, hours long, but not two hours and 43 minutes long. I think, you know, with, with 2049, again, it's funny trying to give advice to these people who are obviously at the top of their game, but I can imagine a universe in which 2049 was around two hours running time. And then when it was released on DVD Blu-ray, you had... An extended edition. The extended version. Mm -hmm. And what a delight this would have been for fans. They mm -hmm. would have seen the film, a two-hour film in theaters. They would have enjoyed it. And then when the DVD came out, there'd be a buzz. Oh, my God. There's 43 more minutes of film mm -hmm. that we can enjoy. And it would fill in details and fill in gaps. And it would be wonderful. So, What I would like, if there was a sequel, because I'm such a fan of Rachel... If you saw the Wallace Corporation bring it back, her back again, we using that DNA material, trying to have it procreate, and what that thing's going through, what it's going through, whatever they're calling it, um, and it's so it's certainly Sean Young's likeness, and it looks like Rachel, but they're trying to use it to get pregnant, and they don't really. It's, it's essentially she's a she would be a like a, 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 a cow or something like they're just they don't give a shit what she is they're trying to harness whatever magic happened between her, her her original and Deckard and what she might be going through in that space wherever they've created her I think that might be an interesting story I'm sure Sean Young would love it too <laughs> I think you should pitch that pitch that idea <laughs> seem to credit for it <laughs> well I think uh, that's a plenty that's, long interview. Yeah. Uh, we, we really thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Absolutely. Yeah, we Absolutely. can't thank you enough. I think it was a fascinating conversation. We'd like to, you know, invite you on again in the future as as other things develop or as we have, um, you know, possibly even we could invite you on a roundtable episode to participate with other people. But um, yeah, thank you so much for bringing your expertise and your passion for it. And and uh, congratulations again on the book. Again, I'll put the liner notes. Um, in the episode so that um, people can go look it up because it's really a, a fascinating read and I'm sure I'll read it more than two times uh, when, I, when, when I get the chance. <laughs> you know, despite my interest in Blade Runner, uh, I don't know that many people who have the same degree of interest in the film, so this has been a real pleasure yeah. talking with a couple of real diehard uh, Blade Runner fans like yeah, myself. definitely. Totally. Yeah. I feel like, and I was telling, I don't know if it was you or someone, that for me, Blade Runner feels, the, the universe feels like almost therapy I feel like exploring that film explores myself. Mm -hmm. And the more I find out about the film, the more I find out about myself. Like, and I feel like it's almost like a, it's kind of, I mean, it sounds kind of cliche, but it feels like a self-help. Like, I feel like it helps me through life. Like, when 2049 came out and it blew me away, I met Dan and uh, myself and Patrick, our co-host, was, it, it, it was just like dynamic internal shift happening with us it was very interesting we're all going through strange things in our lives and this film just coalesced all of us 
and a lot of people within fandom it's I can't explain it it's amazing that a film can have that effect yeah. most mm-hmm. films don't obviously right. true um, there's something very unusual about this film that it has that effect on people yeah my best friend Rusty makes fun of me all the time because I'll be like oh yeah I'm watching I'm introducing Blade Runner to such and such friend or I'm watching Blade Runner and he's like you know they make other movies right? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like yeah but I don't get the feeling that I get out of Blade Runner from other movies you know it's this exceptional thing it is um, but anyways yeah, yeah I'd say we can uh, call it around there and thank you again for coming on and hope to talk to you soon great thank you dying for the right cause is the most human thing we can do Because you've never seen a miracle. To find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please visit us on our website at www.perfectorganism.com. Shoulder of Orion is available for listen or download through Apple iTunes, Google Play, and TuneIn Radio. If you'd like to join in the discussion, please join our official Facebook discussion group, Fields of Calantha, a Blade Runner discussion group.